much of what we see when we sit on retreat like this is the habits, the patterns of our mind, the momentum of years and years of our mind functioning in a certain way. It seems to me, especially with this style of practice, this open awareness practice, that we really get to know our mind's patterns very intimately because we're not coming back to a primary object quite as much. Coming back to that primary object, we have the opportunity to bypass our habits and patterns somewhat. But just staying in the open awareness, we really get to see our minds. It's like this mind 101. And often we have a sense of our habits, our patterns, our beliefs, our emotions, being layered, that there's kind of a a layer upon layer of, of different moods, emotions, patterns. So we often have this idea or this kind of structure in our minds of our experience being layered. And the Buddha also used this analogy of layers in one of his teachings, the teachings of the five aggregates. So the five aggregates, for those who are not, those of you who are not familiar with it, the term aggregate translates the Pali term kanda, which While aggregate sounds like a very technical term, kanda is a very ordinary word. It basically means heap or bundle. And so what the five aggregates describe are five heaps of experience, five different ways to break our experience up, or five different categories or groups or heaps of experience. And these five are the body, consciousness, perception, feeling, and what are sometimes called volitional formations. So the the body is pretty clear what that is. The experience of the physical in the physical realm The other four aggregates refer to aspects of the mind. Steve has mentioned three of them several times, I believe. He's he's mentioned the consciousness, perception, and feeling. Those kind of form the bare functioning of the mind. They're they're the, the, the core bottom level functioning of the way the mind experiences things. There's, there's an object and then the mind contacts that object. There's the bare knowing of that object. And that object is perceived, is recognized. And there's a, a feeling tone to it, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. This is kind of just the bare taking in of experience, these three of the five aggregates. The fifth aggregate is sort of the dumping ground for everything else in our experience. It includes our habits, our emotions, our patterns, our sense of self, as well as other states of mind. And this is where the Buddha's analogy, using the analogy of layers, comes in. He had an analogy for each of these five aggregates. 
They're great analogies, and I don't have time to go through all of them, but I'll tell you the analogy he gave for this um, volitional formation. Sankara is the name of the aggregate in Pali. He said that this aggregate, this, these mental formations, these volitional formations, are like a plantain tree, a banana tree. And what I understand, or the, what I understand the analogy to represent, is that if you look at a plantain tree, if you look at what it is, it looks pretty solid. It's, you know, it's about that big around. At least the banana trees I've seen are about that big around. They're pretty thick. They stand up. You know, they're pretty sturdy looking things. But if you start trying to find the center of the banana tree, what you do is you peel away layers. Each leaf, each leaf comes down and joins at the base of the plantain tree. And you start peeling away the leaves looking for the center of this banana tree. And when you have peeled away all the leaves, you've got a pile of leaves Mm -hmm. and nothing else. So there's no center. There's no, there's nothing there in the middle. It's created, the structure of the banana tree is created by this layering of leaves. And much of our usual, much of our usual everyday experience of ourselves is found in this aggregate of the volitional formations. Our emotions, our habits, our sense of self, these ways, the ways in which we normally experience our life, ourselves, much of it is found in this aggregate. So this analogy of layers is the one I'd like to explore this evening. And I think this analogy is so interesting and so useful because just as in the peeling away of all of the leaves from the plantain tree, you find nothing in the middle the structure of our personality, the structure of our sense of self is created through this kind of layering effect. And there's nothing solid in the middle. You you go through all the layers and there's nothing there. There's no solid core, no solid thing in the middle. So often, as I, as I said, we do have this sense of our experience having layers of sorts. And we seem to think that what we need to do is to get down to the core layer. And if we just understood that core layer of our experience, the deeper fears, the deeper um, aversions, the, the, the deeper things that are underneath everything, then everything would be okay. So we, I think we often like try to dive in to, to uncover what our experience, the deeper layers of our experience are. But I found in my own experience of practice that that kind of digging is actually not as productive. And what we really need to do in exploring all of these layers, whether it's a layer of habitual patterns of behavior or layers that create the sense of self, what we need to do is actually just explore the outer layer. Just meet what is obvious in our experience. So there's several 
things I'd like to talk about with respect to exploring these outer layers of experience. Again, this, there's a quality of investigation that we need to bring to our experience. But what we often think of as investigation is digging. You know, digging holes, pulling things apart, trying to uncover something deeper. But the way to investigate our experience is much lighter than that. Saira Upandita uses the analogy for investigation of rubbing a bowl with a soft cloth. Just that continual contact of the cloth with the bowl, that's investigation. So it doesn't dig or penetrate or break or, uh, it does penetrate in a way, but it doesn't, it, it doesn't, um, doesn't destroy the structure. It, it more just comes in contact with what is. It meets what is this investigation. And the curious part about that gentle rubbing is that it begins to reveal what is underneath. So even though we often have a sense of what lies underneath, or we think we have a sense of how our patterns are layered on top of fears and vulnerabilities and insecurities. I think we all kind of have explored our minds. This culture, in this particular culture, we tend to have this uh, kind of almost psychoanalytic approach to our lives. So many of us have this understanding of, of deeper, um, layers to our experience. But I find in the practice it's not so helpful to, to, to hold those, those um, assumptions. They are assumptions about what lies underneath, but, or at least to hold them very lightly, if possible, so that they are not operating as a filter through which we are exploring our experience. Often when we hold ideas, beliefs, assumptions, our, our perception of our experience is altered by those beliefs. So it's, it's most helpful in the practice, to, in that meeting of our experience, that direct contact with our outer layer, to have no assumptions about what is underneath. Just recognize and be with whatever is most obvious in your experience. Another helpful way to explore this outer layer is through using a balanced effort. This balanced effort is very light. When we use the word effort, often it has a heavy sound. In our uh, normal everyday use of the word effort, it's kind of a marshalling of resources to apply our strength and energy to something. But in the practice, the effort is much lighter than that. Just now, in your experience, notice the sensations of your hands. Notice your butt on the chair or bench or cushion. How much effort did that take? <coughs> it's very light. It almost takes no effort at all 
to simply direct the mind and contact experience. That is the kind of effort that is most helpful in this practice. It's very light, but it needs to be completely continuous in order to be penetrating, in order for the, the, the combination of that effort with the mindfulness to really meet the experience. I came up with my own analogy about this effort. It's kind of like the kind of effort you might make to hold a helium balloon if your hands were covered with thumbtacks. <laughs> it's got to be really light, but it's got to be a continuous pressure. If you let up at all, the balloon will float away. If you push too hard, the balloon will pop. So it's that kind of effort. It's not so much about marshalling our resources to really, uh, I'm really, I'm going to be, I'm going to be mindful this whole sitting. It's more about recognizing how frequently we need to refresh our mindfulness. When our mind is drifting and dull, we may need to remind ourselves more often, every half second, using perhaps the noting as a tool to keep ourselves present. We're using some kind of reminder to help, help us remember to stay present. But as the mindfulness and the effort gain momentum, that more continuous reminding actually gets in the way. And then we can allow the, the effort to more unfold on its own. So we need to have some discernment about how to apply this effort. But in general, it's really helpful to think of it as being really light. There were times in my practice, I tend to be one of those driver types. Um, and there were times in my practice when I would be noticing my experience and realize, recognizing the effort that, that was being used, you know, that, that I was over-efforting. And I would consciously let go, back off, how much can I let go of trying and still stay present? At some point, the mind would wander. But I could let go a lot before that would happen. So it's an interesting place to explore how much, how much effort we really need. It's very light. It's much more the lightness, but the uh, just every moment remembering to keep reapplying that very light effort. The, another quality that's very helpful as we explore our, the layers of our experience is acceptance. Just acceptance. If we could just accept whatever is happening, that actually, to me, in my experience, has felt like the path through all of the layers of experience. It's in the acceptance of an experience that it really reveals itself and reveals its true nature, and it potentially also reveals causes and conditions that had it come into being. So it can reveal the underlying um, causes as we just stay with the experience with acceptance. Non-acceptance is a kind of a glue. I think of a glue that holds all of those layers together and creates that kind of sense of solidity. And non-acceptance can take several forms. It can take the form of resistance, the basic aversive energy. It can take the form of wanting or desire, that holding on energy. Or it can take the form of the, del the delusional energy of basically not wanting to know, not wanting to experience. 
working through deep habits, deep patterns. We've spent years accumulating these habits and patterns. And it can take a long time to really see through and completely understand how they are put together. So they may not disappear suddenly. This is really part of the gradual cultivation that Joseph talks about. I have one, and there's one analogy the Buddha gives about this path of practice, this gradual cultivation path of practice that's one of my favorite analogies. And I call it the rotting rope analogy. And I'll give you an impressionistic version of this analogy. If there's a shipwreck and the ship is broken up into bits all along the shore, there's pieces of wood, there's pieces of rope, there's stuff just strewn everywhere. And over the course of years, the sun, the sand, the wind begins to wear down at all of these bits of debris scattered on the beach. And particularly, I like to think about the ropes that are, that are there on the beach and how as the rope is worn away by the sand, the sun, the wind, it kind of still looks like a rope, you know? It's, but it's kind of losing its internal structure. And someday, at some point, one grain of sand, one breath of wind may finally let that whole thing come apart. But it's such a subtle release that it may not be very obvious may not be very, you know, it's not a dramatic kind of, of falling apart of this rope. It's a very slow, gradual process. And the Buddha says that the, 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 the rope is like the clinging in our mind. And the sun, the wind, the, the water is like the mindfulness wearing down the clinging. And part of the reason this, one of this, these, this analogy is one of my favorites is because this seems to be, I, I seem to be shorter on the sudden awakening side of things and longer on the gradual cultivation side of things. I, you know, a few of those sudden awakening experiences, but this, this gradual cultivation really resonates with me. And I've had some experiences that have so clearly shown me that this is operating over time. <clears throat> One of the key habits and patterns in my experience is aversion, often manifesting as anger. And I had a very strong anger at a particular person for years and worked with this pattern of anger over and over again for years and years and years. At some point, I realized that my mindfulness was kind of weak in comparison to this pattern, that when I tried to apply the mindfulness to the anger at this particular person in, primarily, that the mind would just get sucked in to the anger. So I realized that bringing mindfulness to it wasn't so helpful, actually, because I would get lost in the anger. So I came up with this little uh, mantra for myself to put it aside. And I, I shortened this mantra to not now. And what that meant to me was it was an acknowledgement of the anger. I see you, anger. My mindfulness is not strong enough to meet you. 
but I will pay attention to you when my mindfulness gets stronger. So it wasn't an aversive putting it aside. It was, it was a very gentle putting aside of the anger. And this is the way I actually worked with this anger for several years. I didn't look at it directly. I really, I, I noticed it when it came up. I clearly noticed it. Yes, there's that anger again. Okay, not now. And I would go to something neutral in my experience, putting my attention into my feet on the ground. It often seemed I was walking when I would get into one of these anger episodes. Over the course of the years, I began to realize that the episodes of anger were getting further apart. I began to recognize, it's been a few months since I've experienced that anger. And one day, I realized it's been a very long time since I've experienced that anger. And even in the recollection in that moment of the person that I was angry with, I couldn't call up the anger. And I was kind of amazed. I I thought, wow, is it actually gone? I didn't trust it. But it, it had disappeared. It has never come back. And it disappeared without my seeing it disappear. Just through this being willing to meet the anger when I could, with what mindfulness I could, and not being aversive about it. This very gentle touching of this layer of anger. Very powerful. So sometimes we can actually break through a layer in this kind of sudden awakening also. We can have a a sudden insight into the empty nature of a particular pattern. And then suddenly the whole thing just falls apart. I had an experience about this around self-hatred and on one retreat, At one point on this retreat, I was in such despair around the self-hatred, I thought, this is so deep. Again, I was like seeing all the layers. I had kind of seen how deep it went into my childhood and how many ways it was conditioned and put together into this structure of self-hatred. And I thought, I'm going to have to be fully enlightened in order for this to go away. (laughs) But on that retreat, at one point... Just being willing to be there with it without that resistance, with complete acceptance of the self-hatred. At one moment, the recognition of the pattern appearing just being an empty phenomenon. And the pattern fell apart in that moment. And in that moment, there was just this little surge of of this kind of like complete bliss of, oh, never again, it's gone. It's gone forever. And then, fortunately, the mind was a little aware of that tendency and realized, no, the causes and conditions have come together for me to see through it in this moment. But it doesn't mean it's gone forever. In that particular case, that insight into the uh, empty nature of that self-hatred cut pretty deeply into the pattern. The way I see it now in, in retrospect and looking at what, is, what ha- is happening for me around this now is that it cut the belief in the self-hatred. Those thoughts still appear you're no good, they still come up. But there's no belief around them. There's not, there's not that formation of layers upon layers of self-hatred that arises because of a thought. So these kinds of insights can be very penetrating and can really allow a sudden dropping of huge patterns that we've held for years. 
So we don't know how long it will take to work through our habits, our patterns, these layers of experience. But there's some basic instructions for whatever we're paying attention to. Observe what is obvious about what is actually happening with as much acceptance as possible. And if there is non-acceptance, notice that. We can often check into this non-acceptance through checking the attitude to our experience. Simple way of noticing what is our relationship to what is actually happening. I'd like to go through an example of how this unfolded in one at one point in my practice of how using this very gentle approach of just seeing what's there, looking at the resistance, how it unfolded in a particular retreat for me. There's a lot of instruction, I think, or, or useful tips, I guess, in this example, which is why I'm going to use it. Um, when I went back through it, I realized, oh, there's a lot of good little tools that are helpful here. So this, this example took place on a long retreat I was doing in Burma at uh, Utejaniya's monastery. So I was doing this practice that you are working with here. And I was noticing that my walking meditation was not so pleasant. I would be doing the walking meditation and I'd notice these contractions in the heart, these contractions in the throat. And I began noticing that it was primarily happening every time I turned around to start the next path. And I just kept observing it, just just noticing all of this, noticing as much as I could about these, this unpleasantness I was experiencing. It wasn't physical unpleasantness. It was, clearly, it was clearly some kind of emotional experience that was unpleasant. And finally, I realized, oh, I should check my attitude after a while of doing this. And what I re- recognized my attitude was, was not wanting to practice. I didn't want to be meditating. I didn't want to be practicing. Now, this is a really useful attitude to recognize. (laughs) When this attitude comes up, it often, we either think we have to believe it or we have to get rid of it. We can just notice this as an arising experience. It's just not wanting to practice that's arising in our experience right now. When I finally realized that this was a possibility of a way of relating to this mood or mind state, it was hugely freeing. Just noticing, not wanting to practice, not wanting to practice. That's what's happening right now. So in this case, while uh, doing this walking meditation, I just began noticing, not wanting to practice. That became my my object. That was what was really happening. So days later, hours later, whatever, I can't remember. This this whole episode unfolds over some weeks. Um, More walking meditation, more unpleasantness, aches in the heads, resistance. And um, in this particular time, I began noticing with that resistance that what seemed most helpful was not actually trying to be with the resistance, but it was more like um, allowing the resistance to be there and recognizing that it was one among thousands of things that were going on in the present moment, so that my lens of the present moment got pretty big. And, you know, there's the breeze on my cheek, and there's the sun, and there's the movement of the walking, and there's the resistance, and there's the 
feet of, my feet on the ground and there's seeing and there's the resistance so that it's just touching in to it kind of occasionally. And I find this, this technique is also extremely helpful when something is um, either hard to be with when, when we are kind of pulled into something, if we try to bring close attention to it, or if we've got this agenda of, I'm going to pay attention to this and figure it out, which is a very common one for me. So it's more like just kind of letting it be at a very light level and just touching into it as the mind naturally touches into it. This is really um, a lot of what we're doing here is noticing what the mind is already doing. Connecting with what the mind is already doing. And the mind is already noticing many, many things along with the resistance. So not trying to have an agenda about fixing the resistance seemed to be most helpful for me in this particular scenario. And then again, some days later or uh, hours later, I began noticing while walking again, the walking did not get pleasant for quite a while on this retreat, um, a low-grade depression that was happening. And this was new. I hadn't really seen the depression before. You know, I'd seen these physical aches and the resistance, but uh, you know, it, it, it took a while to actually contact this depression through this just gentle being with the outermost layer, gentle touching of the outermost layer. This depression began to reveal itself. I noticed these physical sensations that I described earlier, the contraction in the throat, the contraction in the heart. I noticed resistance. I didn't like the depression. I noticed that I thought it wasn't supposed to be there. As a good meditator, I should not be experiencing depression. I noticed when the depression wasn't there, when there was happiness, there was this feeling this is the way it's supposed to be. And there seemed to be a direct connection between the uh, supposed to be of the happiness and the not supposed to be of the depression. I noticed that it could arise when the mind was calm and tranquil and peaceful. That seemed to be one of the places where it appeared. This happens, this kind of thing happens more often than you might recognize. When the mind gets settled and calm, equanimous, peaceful, we can kind of be drifting in that peaceful state and not really connected to it. And in that state, the mind the mind is actually not so comfortable there sometimes. It's much more used to drama. <laughs> and in that space, it will find things to be averse to or find things to crave. It's not, it's not so happy just hanging out in that space. <laughs> so it's really interesting, actually, to pay attention closely when the mind gets into that peaceful state. You know, don't just kind of ride it and hang out there. That, that kind of gives the, uh, the habits. I mean, the way I look at it is when we get into that very peaceful state, it's like the habits, the, the habitual tendencies that we have are kind of just waiting to find a moment of, of non-mindfulness to erupt. <laughs> so not that it's bad for them to erupt, but notice when they do. I observed this depression, what seemed to be happening, and this, this wasn't something I was doing so much as what seemed to be unfolding in my awareness, was that I was recognizing this depression when it was there through three basic frameworks. 
it was either the depression or there was the resistance to the depression or the depression was absent. And I just, noticing those three valences, I just kind of tracked them. When am I depressed? When is the resistance there? How did that change the feeling of the depression? And what is it like when the depression was gone? And sometimes there could be a very rapid oscillation between these different states. Sometime later, again in the walking, I began to notice or to recognize that the depression, the resistance to the depression was a natural process of the mind. It too was simply created by causes and conditions. And that recognition actually showed me that I had considered the, the resistance to be a problem, that the resistance was something that needed to be gotten rid of in order for me to be properly mindful. Recognizing the resistance itself as a natural process of the mind didn't change the experience of those three different valences of the depression, the resistance to the depression, and the non-depression. But it allowed the observation to flow much more freely. There was much less um, contraction or any kind of holding around the experience of those three states. And this points to a teaching that Utejaniya talks about. He actually points to a mantra of sorts to use at times. And that mantra is, this is nature. This is nature. And I use that a lot in my experience when I'm practicing in this style as a reminder that whatever is happening Whatever is happening in my experience is simply a natural process of causes and conditions. It's just as natural as a flower blooming or as natural as a, as a tree aging and rotting and falling in the forest. So this is nature, a very helpful pointing to the mind. It can open the mind to that more balanced, equanimous space of just being with experience. Some time later, doing walking meditation, I noticed that I was calm. And almost immediately, a very strong vigilance arose to kind of uh, keep on the lookout for depression arising. I uh, checked into the attitude around this vigilance because I wondered, you know, is this skillful (laughs) or not? And I didn't see any particular unskillful attitude around it. But after even just a few minutes of this vigilance, the mind got tired. There was a kind of an exhaustion that began to set in. So I got a sense that there's something a little off here because there's too much energy going into this vigilance. So in checking into that vigilance a little more carefully, I saw there was fear underlying that vigilance, a fear of the re-arising of the depression, kind of wanting to track the calm really closely so that I could catch it just as it arose so it wouldn't get out of hand. So there was that fear that was under there. And just hanging out with the fear, I could just hang out with the fear and the depression did not arise. So just hanging out with what is most obvious. In the sitting, or the the period immediately following this particular walking, I went back to my room, I was meditating in my room, and I got into my meditation posture. And I immediately noticed the sensations that I had been feeling in the walking arise. There was the uh, contraction in the heart, the squeezing in the throat. And this was unusual because I had not been experiencing these sensations in the still posture, only in the walking. But the mind was pretty open and was able to just be with that experience of the contraction. No resistance whatsoever. 
and I watched it get really big, that feeling of, of the, the contraction. Just, it felt like it got really big. It grew, it grew. I let it get as big as it wanted to. And at some point, it flipped and turned into metta. And it was a beautiful, open state of metta. And there was this thought that arose almost immediately. This is stupid. This is sappy. This is corny. (laughs) And I laughed. (laughs) But I saw in that moment that the pattern of the depression had been through a resistance to the metta a kind of a sense of sappiness or, you know, that hallmark greeting card feeling about metta. It's like, no, you know, this isn't me. Um, So there had been a resistance to that, opening that connection, that feeling of connection. Now, after that moment, the depression didn't come back again. Now, I'm not saying that I was in a state of, you know, expanded blissful metta. I saw, actually, what I saw in that moment was that I've got a lot of work to do around this. (laughs) But having seen the resistance to the metta, having seen the attitude to the metta, it it was no longer operating underneath, hidden away, and no longer had the power to create that feeling of depression. So sometimes when a layer drops away, we can get complacent about a particular pattern, about that paying attention to the habits and patterns. We can kind of feel like, oh yeah, I figured that one out. Upandita often talked about three layers of habit. There's the layer of habit that erupts into bodily action. There's the layer of habit that erupts into thought, but may not trigger bodily action. And there's the underlying tendency towards a habit. And one of the layers, the layer towards the layer of the habit erupting into the bodily uh, action can fall away. But the underlying tendency is still there. The Thoughts arising in the mind are still there. And if we get complacent around those layers, the pattern can reform itself. So it's really helpful to keep track of, especially when a a pattern um, begins to unravel, really pay more close attention to the the, the subtle thoughts, like in my... um, self-hatred example, the subtle thought of you're no good arising. Even though there's not much belief associated with it, I try to take care to recognize that thought. So the solid sense of self can be created through a process of reinforcing cycle of habits, of identification with habits or belief in a habit, a a solid identification around a pattern happens because of layers upon layers of these beliefs and reinforcing identifications. So for example, Um, I used to think of myself as a miserable person. And that miserableness, that belief in being a miserable person made me perceive my experience as miserable and reinforced that miserable self. Even times when I was happy, 
I had such an identification with being miserable that I would recognize, well, yeah, I'm happy now, but I know I'm really a miserable person. <laughs> so this layering can create the beliefs, essentially create self-fulfilling prophecies, essentially. Our habits, our patterns, our beliefs affect how we perceive the world. So if we start paying attention to the layers, the outer layers of our experience, these habits and patterns can start to dissolve. Bringing attention to the happiness without that belief of being a miserable person, or at least suspending the belief of being a miserable person, we actually begin to see that we are in not in the states that we identify with a lot of the time. So I began to discover I wasn't miserable a lot of the time. <laughs> it began poking holes in that identification. So really allowing ourselves to be with what is happening, letting go as much as possible of beliefs, or at least recognizing that the belief is there so that it's not operating unseen. And as we keep exploring, we see layer upon layer dissolving. And like the plantain leaf, there's nothing in the middle. There's nothing in the center. Just simply a process of things being experienced and things being known. This layer-like quality can also manifest in our meditation experiences also. And beliefs can get built up around our meditative experiences that then, like my belief in my miserable self, begin to alter our perception of our meditative experience. And we view our experience through this framework. So sometimes in our practice, we, especially early, in early times of our practice, it seems we, we start to experience very interesting things in our meditation. You know, our body might start to feel like it's really big or very heavy or really short, or there's just some very interesting perceptual experiences that happen in our meditation. And sometimes they're accompanied with pleasantness, and they're often accompanying concentration. And we start to think that these experiences mean concentration. And we think that in order to have the concentration, we have to have those experiences. But what seems to happen over time is that actually, as we get familiar with the altered perceptual experience in meditation, these experiences, these odd bodily experiences, are no longer quite so startling or so unique or so interesting. And they begin to kind of become less predominant. I don't know exactly what happens to them, whether they just don't appear or whether they're more just not attended to or not. It's just like, oh yeah, there's that, and you know, it's no big deal. So it doesn't become such a big thing in our experience. But if we have the belief that they need to be there in order to be concentrated, it will disrupt our ability to get concentrated. So trying to get back to what something was like is suffering. It's grasping after some uh, idea of a pleasant experience, perhaps, or some belief of good meditation. This is what good meditation was. Even if it wasn't pleasant, it was flowing and it was clear. And that's what good meditation is. 
So assuming our meditation is not working because we're not having one of these touchstone experiences is not so helpful. I found that every time I get stuck in one of these patterns, the way through, every time I get stuck in one of these beliefs about, oh, I'm not really meditating properly or I can't do this now, the way through it is to just notice the most obvious thing in experience. Not trying to dig, not trying to get anywhere, not trying to do anything, just notice what is actually happening. What is most obvious about what's actually happening? Sometimes in meditation we land in a new space, one we haven't been in before, and our experience gets really strange, different. It feels like we can't be mindful anymore. It feels like the mind is just continually wandering. Now the mind continually wandering, of course that means we're not, things are going backwards. I mean, obviously it means things are going backwards. But maybe not. Sometimes the mind settles into new spaces where it's not, it's like the, the, the mind settles into a more subtle level of experience and it doesn't quite know how to be there. It doesn't quite know how to connect with it. And because of that, it gets lost. But it's not because we've suddenly uh, lost our mindfulness or we've not been um, paying attention. It's because our experience has shifted or we've landed in a new space. So again, just seeing, can we notice? It's like, well, oh, the mind is wandering a lot. What's happening? Oh, I see that as I pay attention to the breath, the breath gets so subtle, it almost disappears. And that's when the mind wanders. Just notice what's happening. Just what's happening. Beliefs, ideas, put them on the back burner. Assumptions, they're not usually very helpful in our meditation practice. So just to, to, to stress again, I mean, really the theme for me of this talk is meet what is most obvious in your experience, whatever it is. It doesn't matter what it is. It might be peace and calm. It might be boredom. It might be not wanting to practice. It might be self-hatred, frustration, disappointment, irritation. Just meeting whatever it is, is the path. That is our path. That is our next step. And being in that place of being aware, mindful of our experience, without that, resistance, without the wanting, in that place of acceptance, acceptance of our experience. Essentially, that's the wisdom side, meeting with the mindfulness. And those two together take us right to freedom. Let's sit for a few moments.
Thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.